0: Amen. Well, David, I kid about your age and how long you've been here, but uh, I think Jamie was actually just starting to eat solid food about the time that you started here, so I think he was still on Cradle Row in his home church about the time that you started working here. It's good to see you again, church. Um, Again, we're going to be talking this morning about our World Harvest Mission Offering theme from the Neighborhoods to the Nations And uh, we're going to be looking at a couple of different passages of Scripture this morning. The first is found in Revelation chapter 7. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, we're going to be looking at that first. And then we're going to be looking at a passage in Romans chapter 10. And so as I said a second ago this morning, we are wrapping up our emphasis on our Who's Your One campaign. We're not wrapping up... The emphasis as far as the church is concerned. We're just wrapping up the sermon series, but we will continue to emphasize that. We've been asking this one question of, of all of our church members over the last four weeks, which is Who's your one? Who's the person that God's placed in your life who most needs to hear the gospel? Who's the person that you have an opportunity to pray for and to look for an opportunity sometime in the next six to 12 months? to engage in a gospel conversation with that person. We've been asking you to pray about that. We've been asking you to to think about who God would have you to to pray for. And we've been asking you to let us know about that. So there's some some cards, some little prayer bookmarks that say who's your one on them. And and on the end of that, there's a, there's a, a, a detachable card that says here's who my one is. And so far, about 20 of you have turned in names of people that you believe God has called you to pray for and to be looking to engage with them in a gospel conversation. We're going to ask you to continue to turn those in as God reveals those to you so that we can place those on our church prayer list and so that we can continue to be reminded about that. And as you engage in those gospel conversations, we want you to let us know about that. We want you to tell us, hey, I had an opportunity to take my one to lunch this week and and, and maybe, they, maybe they prayed to receive Christ, but maybe they didn't. You just planted a seed and you were able to, to talk to them and they were open to hearing the gospel message. Let us know about that. There have been several people after church that have been telling me about the one that they've been praying for and, and, and their plans to go and talk to that person sometime in the next two to three weeks. So continue to do that. We wanted to wrap... Up the Who's Your One campaign by, by launching our World Harvest Missions offering today as we as we wrap up 2018-2019 in that offering and as we look forward to what God would have us to do in 2019 and 2020. But that begs a couple of questions, especially if if you're kind of new to Central Park Baptist Church. Last year I was I was new here as pastor. I, I came here as pastor the first of September and Within like three weeks, I was handed a, a, a what, what do you want for budgets for this next year? And I had no idea what to, what to put down. I had no frame of reference for that. And then we started talking about this harvest offering, which I had never been a part of before. And I began to pray about that and begin to think about what God would have us to do. So that, that, that brings questions to mind like, why do we do a harvest offering every year? Why don't we just put missions in the budget and ask people to give to the budget and not worry about asking for people to commit to a specific offering? Why do we take time to, to print out cards, to print out these, kind, these, these expensive pledge cards and prayer bookmarks and pay the postage to send them to your house And and we all know that missions is important in the church, but, but isn't missions just one of the many programs that we're called in the church to offer? Why so much of an emphasis on missions and evangelism? Why would I dare ask you as a church family to seek the Holy Spirit in prayer and to ask the Spirit of God specifically to reveal to you what His will is to financially commit to missions in the Great Commission? Doesn't that seem a little presumptuous of me as pastor? To say that I believe that God has called every single person in this church not only to be actively obedient to the Holy Spirit through the matter of, of tithing and through the matter of, of generous giving to the church, but, but also that I believe that God's called every one of us in some way to play some part in accomplishing the Great Commission. Some people believe that we shouldn't talk about money in the church at all. That we should stop talking about money in the church and certainly that we should avoid asking people to give over and above what they typically tithe. So why do we do this? Let me answer that in a couple of ways. First of all, as I said a second ago, Central Park Baptist Church is the first church that I've ever served at that placed such a strategic and intentional emphasis on funding missions through a special annual offering. And because it was so new last year, I really didn't really know what to do and how to lead through that process. Many of you know that this offering began many years ago as a way for this church to pay down some some building debt, while at the same time to be able to continue to demonstrate a spirit of generosity and a commitment towards missions. And over the years, as we've become debt-free as a church, we've been able to just focus the entire focus of this offering strategically on missions and ways that we believe God has called us as a church to partner in missions. I have several pastor friends that I talk to quite often, some here in the city of Decatur, some in other places. When I tell them that I'm privileged to serve at a church, that this last year gave $113,000 just over and above their tithes to Great Commission Ministries, many of my friends who are pastors are very, very surprised by that. Your, your, Your spirit as a church, for a church our size, to demonstrate such incredible generosity is not something that we see in many churches today. I have a pastor friend who Their church is is still in some debt and he said that one of the great things that he's excited about is over the course of the next year that they believe they're going to fully and finally pay off their debt and when they do as a church, they will have almost several hundred thousand dollars if not close to a million dollars that they're going to be able to put towards missions in the coming years. But right now they're hamstrung and aren't able to do that. So let me give you a few ways that your giving this year has helped to accomplish the Great Commission here at Central Park Baptist Church. Through your giving to the Harvest Offering, you have enabled us to serve in ministries locally such as First Priority. I had the opportunity a few weeks ago to go to the First Priority Banquet and to listen as we heard the stories of the 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 hundreds of students that have received Christ, thousands over the course of the last ten years. And to know that we have a partnership through First Priority that has a campus club where students on every campus in Morgan and Lawrence County have an opportunity to hear the gospel or to study God's word, both elementary students, middle school students, and high school students. And we're able to partner financially with First Priority because of the gifts that you give through the harvest offering. That's not in our regular church budget. This year, we're going to add to our harvest offering a partnership with Save a Life, which works with ladies who find themselves in a crisis pregnancy situation and working with them to to help them through that. A very critical ministry. Your gifts through the Harvest Offering have enabled us as a church to train pastors in northern Uganda, where I was able to go in September and, and work in our pastor training center at Four Corners Ministries, and also to be able to partner with Four Corners in some other endeavors through a ministry called Abana's Hope there in in Uganda. Your ministry gifts have helped us to send a team for many years to Guatemala to share the gospel through medical missions and many other types of mercy ministries. Your gifts help us support Danny Perkle and the H2O Church in Cincinnati that is reaching college students on the college campus in Cincinnati. Your gifts have helped us to faithfully and generously support international missions through the International Mission Board and the Lighty Moon Christmas Offering. Missions here in North America through the North American Mission Board and the Annie Armstrong Easter Offering. This year we will add to that the Myers-Mallory Offering for state missions here in our own state. And you've also helped us to continue to support financially our local Decatur campus of the Alabama Baptist Children's Home. This year we were also able to begin a partnership in western maryland with an organization called bruce outreach center which we were able to send a team to work and we're planning to send a team next year and if we are able to meet our budget goals we hope to be able to add support for stephan carr who is the pastor of that ministry stephan is actually in alabama this week he will be here tomorrow to meet with ken and i and anybody else who'd like to meet him he is a bucket of energy and would love to get to know you if you'd like to meet him he'll be here tomorrow As I said, when I came here, I wasn't familiar with leading a church through such a process like this. I'd been in churches before where we had periodic building campaigns and people pledged to give towards construction or church remodeling. But I became quickly excited about the potential that this process creates for us as a church to do more for missions than we would normally be able to do otherwise. As a matter of fact, I've been working in church ministry for about 28 years, and I'll tell you that my experience is that most of the time, missions is the last item funded in most church budgets. Most of the time, we get to missions after we get to everything else. And certainly it's important for us as a church family to raise money to keep up our facilities and to keep them as up-to-date and as modern as we possibly can. And through your generosity, not only through the harvest offering, but also your faithful generosity to give to the church, we've been able over the last few years to have enough money in our facilities fund to go ahead and purchase an upgrade to our pews and our seating here, which will begin in January. And we were able to do that without having to go through a a long campaign to raise money for that. We'll be giving you updates on that process real soon, but just know that in January we're going to be meeting in the Outback, and it's going to be fun, and it's going to be different. And then when we come back in at the end of January, we're going to have a completely different seating system in here, and it's going to be really, really neat to see that. And it's important for us to keep those facilities updated. Many of you have complained to me about how difficult it is to sit in our current pews and how we need to do something differently. And that is important, but it is my firm conviction based on the testimony of God's Word and the example of the early church that there is nothing more important for us as God's people to exhibit sacrifice to than missions and evangelism. There is absolutely nothing scripturally that is more important for us to have a sacrificial spirit towards as God's people than making sure that people have the opportunity to hear the gospel. And so today we are coming together as a faith family to commit ourselves to God's mission for us as a church. And as we said, our theme is from the neighborhoods to the nations. Because we believe that we are called to take the gospel across the street and around the world. And so in just the next few moments, I want to share with you four reasons why I believe, according to the testimony of Scripture, that missions and evangelism matter most, more than anything else in the church. And the first of those I want you to see is in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. And so if you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to turn to Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. And the primary reason why missions and evangelism matter more than anything else in the church is because Jesus alone deserves the worship of all people from all nations. Because Jesus alone deserves the worship of all people from all nations. We see this in Revelation chapter 7 it's one of my favorite passages of scripture and as I began to think about preaching my heart was instantly drawn to this because I want you to see why missions matters as we see what John sees when he looks forward into a future final day when the when the church of Jesus Christ is eternally gathered before her savior I want you to see what's happening here. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 John says, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. I was sharing this passage this morning with our prayer partners, and I told them that this is an interesting passage to me because many of you may not know my, my background, my, my, my bachelor's degree is in accounting. Now, if you know much about me, you would be very surprised by that because I don't really utilize that degree in any particular way. But I had, a, I had a propensity with numbers in college and an accounting degree seemed like the quickest path to get through college and to get on to seminary. And so I graduated with an accounting degree. And I can tell you, if you're an accountant or you're a numbers guy, when you hear somebody say, well, we just couldn't really come up with a number, that's, that's, that's difficult for accountants, okay? Accountants like certainty. They don't like uncertainty and ambiguity. And yet I want you to see what the apostle sees here when he says, I looked into heaven and I saw a multitude so great that nobody could count them. It's big. And then look at what he says. This multitude was from every nation, all tribes, all peoples, all languages, And they were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels are standing around the throne, and all the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. The first reason why missions and evangelism matter is because the worship of Jesus matters. And some of you may be asking, what does missions have to do with worship? Aren't missions and worship two separate things? Isn't missions what we do when we when we gather together and we sing songs and we listen to you preach? Isn't that what worship is? And, and, and I want you to listen to this passage from this off-quoted passage from a pastor by the name of John Piper. He wrote an excellent book on missions called Let the Nations Be Glad. And in chapter 1 of that book, he wrote this passage, which has meant more to me and my understanding of missions than anything else. Listen to this. John Piper writes, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Now some of you would say, well Matt, Matt, you just said missions and evangelism matter more than anything else. Listen carefully. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. But missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. And when this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness Of God. As the psalmist writes, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let many coastlands be glad. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. As Piper accurately explains in his book, missions and worship are not competing programs in the church. Worship fuels missions because you cannot commend what you don't cherish in life. Piper says, your worship of the one true almighty God is what leads us to declare to the nations, let the nations be glad and let the peoples of the earth praise Him. Worship fuels missions and missions is the natural byproduct and outflow of worship. And I will go so far as to say that a church that has a problem supporting missions is a church that has a problem worshiping God. A church that has a problem accomplishing the Great Commission is a church that misunderstands what the worship of God is all about. We have this dangerous tendency in the Western Evangelical Church to compartmentalize our faith so much. And we either compartmentalize our understanding of worship into some sort of formal liturgy that only happens within the walls of a church like this on Sunday morning, and that's how we compartmentalize our understanding of worship, or... We swing the other way and we personalize worship into something that happens when we play our favorite Christian songs during our private time. But what is worship? When we talk about worship, what are we talking about? Are we talking about singing songs? Are we talking about enjoying music? No, worship is about beholding and acknowledging the greatness and the glory of God. That's what worship is. Worship is about giving worth and glory and honor and praise. It's about exactly what they're doing in Revelation chapter 7 when they say blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. That's worship. And I want you to notice those statements. Every single one of those are exclamation points. Every single one of them. That means worship involves emotions and enthusiasm. And some of you Baptists are going to be in for a great wake-up call when we get to heaven. At the volume and the excitement and the glory that's going to be displayed to God in worship. Worship is about beholding and acknowledging the greatness and the glory of God. I put this in your notes. Missions is about helping all people worship Jesus. That's what missions is. Missions is about helping all people worship Jesus. In Revelation chapter 7, these people are worshiping. They're declaring the worth and the glory of Jesus and notice who's worshiping. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 says, It's a great multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language. What is that? That's missions. This is a picture of our future in heaven where eight people from every tribe and nation will be giving Jesus Christ glory because someone brought the gospel to their nation and they believed and were saved. You see, every person on this planet was created with an internal lure to worship. We were created to give glory and awe and honor and praise. But sin causes us to allow our worship to go sideways and we worship ourselves or the creation rather than the creator. Missions and evangelism matter because Jesus is the only one who truly deserves our worship because He is the Lamb of God who has taken away our sins and He alone deserves the worship of all people from all nations. Missions is simply the vehicle we use to bring the nations to worship Jesus. What does worship have to do with missions? Worship has everything to do with missions. Because Jesus alone deserves the worship of all people from every nation. But another reason why missions and evangelism take priority in the church and matter is because lost people's understanding about God is insufficient to save them. Now I want you to turn to Romans chapter 10. And we're going to be spending the next few minutes in this passage of Scripture. And I want us to see... First of all, in Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, that Paul demonstrates for us that lost people's understanding of God, while they have knowledge of Him, that knowledge is insufficient to save them. Look at verses 1 through 3 of Romans chapter 10. He said, Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Now, the them that Paul is referring to here is his, is his fellow Israelites, the Jews. Paul writes through Romans 9, and through chapters 9, 10, and 11 about his desire to see the people of Israel, the Jews, come to understand Jesus as Messiah and to have faith in Him. But in the midst of that, he says, My heart's desire and prayer for them is that they may be saved. I bear witness to them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. In Romans chapter 10 verse 1, we get a glimpse inside Paul's passionate heart for the lost. And, and Paul says, as a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 9 verse 3, which we didn't read, Paul says he is so burdened by his Israelite brothers and sisters that they would come to know Christ that Paul says, I would rather be accursed if it would mean that all of my fellow Israelites would be saved. What Paul is saying there is, I would rather spend eternity in hell myself if it would mean that every single person that I know who's a Jew could come to follow Jesus. Let me ask you a question. We've been asking you over the last few weeks to to pray about God revealing to you someone in your life who needs to know Christ, who you can share the gospel with. Have you ever longed so badly to see someone become a Christian? That you would be willing to say, I would go to hell in their place if it meant that they would trust Christ and be saved. Have you ever desired somebody to be saved that badly? Did you say, God, if someone has to go to hell, I would rather it be me than them. That's what Paul's saying in Romans chapter 9. He has an incredible burden for the lost. An incredible burden to see people come to know the truth about Jesus Christ. And my prayer is that the Spirit of God will develop in us at Central Park, a spirit that continually says, my heart's and desire and prayer to God is that my one would be saved. My greatest desire in God is that this person that God's placed in my life would be saved. And the truth is that every one of us in here truly want to see the lost find Jesus. I don't know of many church members that say, well, you know what, I really don't care if people get saved. (laughs) You know, Pastor, you talk a lot about missions and evangelism and sharing the gospel, but I'll just be honest with you. I don't really care if anybody ever gets saved. Nobody ever says that to me. We all want to see the lost get saved, right? How many of you have somebody in your life right now that you said, I want to see this person come to know Jesus Christ as Savior? Does anybody have somebody like that? All of us want to see some lost people get saved. The problem is desire is not enough. Desire is not enough. Paul shows us the problem in verses 2-3 through when he says about his fellow Jews that he can testify that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. That statement is appropriate for many people that you and I encounter every day because every one of us meet people and know people who say they believe in God, especially here where we live. It seems like everybody has this general, generic understanding of who God is or what what God is like. And so if you try to engage in a conversation, you start to talk about God or the gospel, everybody goes, oh yeah, I believe in God. Many of them say the right religious things. Yeah, I believe in God. I, I got saved when I was eight years old at such and such Baptist church at Bible school. They say the right stuff. And for many of the people that you and I know who are apart from Christ some of them seem very zealous to know God. Some of them would say, yeah, I really do want to be a good person and I want to to be a good Christian. And yet many of them continue to stay in their sin and continue to live life on their terms without submission to God and without submission to His Word. The problem is they're just like what Paul describes in Romans chapter 10. The problem is not that they're not zealous. The problem is that their zealousness is separated from a true saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Simply put, they don't know who He is. They don't have a personal relationship with Him. As a result, Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 1 that although they don't glorify God nor give thanks to Him, but in their thinking their their foolish hearts were darkened. Lost people have futile minds and darkened hearts. In verse 3 of chapter 10, Paul says that since the lost do not know the righteousness of God, they seek to establish a righteousness of their own, not submitting to God's righteousness. What this means is that lost people, people without God, don't submit to God's standards naturally. So instead, they seek to establish their own standards for goodness and righteousness. A few years ago, we were taught in the church in a a method of evangelism called faith evangelism and we would go out and we would ask people about the gospel and we would ask them a question in your personal opinion what does it take to get to heaven and we were told that when you ask that question about 75% of the time you're going to get a a works based answer. About 75% of the time if you ask someone in your understanding in your personal opinion what does it take for someone to get to heaven they're going to talk to you about being a good person they're going to talk to you about doing good things They're going to talk to you about going to church. They're going to give you a works-based answer. Because lost people instinctively understand that there's a God in heaven that they're accountable to, but they set their own standard for goodness that's just good enough for them to be able to get in, right? That's what he's talking about here. And this means that missions and evangelism are the priority mission of the church because... Lost people's understanding of God is insufficient to save them. What they know about God is only enough to rightfully condemn them in their sins before Christ. Which brings us to the third reason why we believe missions and evangelism matter. And that's because salvation can only come through genuine faith in Jesus Christ. If lost people's knowledge of God is insufficient to save them, then how can they be saved? Well, the Bible tells us that salvation can only come from genuine faith in Christ. We've seen the bad news about lostness in verses 1 through 3, but in verses 9 through 10, we see the good news about salvation. Paul gives us an incredible promise that motivates us to go to the lost and the nations and declare the gospel. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This promise tells us that any lost sinner who genuinely declares the Lordship of Jesus from a heart of personal faith and truly believes in the gospel will be saved. What an incredible promise, right? Any lost sinner... Who will confess or declare with their mouth that they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the rightful Lord of this world, and if they believe in their heart the gospel that Jesus died on the cross according to the Scriptures, was buried, and rose again on the third day, according to the Scriptures, that if they will truly believe that by faith, that they will be saved. I don't know if you've been keeping up with social media or current events over the last month, but the past few weeks the evangelical world has been stirred by the news that one of the most visible and successful entertainers in our world today has apparently experienced a gospel conversion. Now time will tell whether it's a true conversion and time will tell as as we watch him because there have been many, many others, many entertainers, many celebrities over the years that have come out and said that they're Christians and they believe in Christ only to fall away over the years. Kanye West, probably one of the most visible entertainers in our world today, over the past month has recently confessed his public faith in Jesus and has been traveling with a church choir, leading worship services in cities instead of concerts. And he's been attending a Bible-preaching church. And here's what I know. I don't know whether Kanye is genuinely saved or not. But I do know Romans 10, 9 and 10 tells me that if Kanye West declares that Jesus is Lord and believe in his heart that God has raised him from the dead, that Kanye West will be saved. And I know that's true for every single person that you and I know too. Paul gives us three essential elements of conversion in this passage. I'm just going to go over them real quick. The first of those is biblical faith. What does it take for someone to be saved? It takes biblical faith. We have to define the word faith in our world because faith in our world just simply means hoping and wishing and believing. Yeah, I have faith. That means I'm kind of hoping, I'm kind of wishing. No, that's not biblical faith. Biblical faith is full trust in Christ and full reliance upon Him and the gospel to save us. Wayne Grudem says this in his systematic theology that saving faith is trust in Jesus as a living person for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life with God. That it means leveraging everything of who you are and what you believe on Jesus Christ alone to save you. We say that a person is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, according to the word of God alone and to the glory of God alone. And so biblical faith is the first element, essential element of conversion. But he also says here in Romans chapter 10 verse 9 that biblical faith involves confession. And confession means an acknowledgement of our sin and an acknowledgement of Jesus' lordship. 1 John chapter 1 tells us if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says if we confess or declare with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that we can be saved. And so we need biblical faith and we need a confession. We need an acknowledgement that we are insufficient to get to heaven on our own and that we confess our sins before a holy and righteous God and we confess the Lordship of Jesus Christ over our lives. And then Thirdly, it takes a repentance. It takes repentance. Repentance is simply turning from sin and turning to follow Jesus. The word repentance in the Greek means metanoia. It means a change of mind that results in a change of action. So most of the time when I'm trying to de- describe repentance, I say repentance is I'm living my life and I'm walking down the path that I want to choose. And yet in the midst of that, I begin to feel a, a, a gravity that the way I'm going is wrong and that the eternity that I'm headed to is dangerous. And, and I hear I hear the gospel and I hear Christ call out to me to believe the gospel and to repent. And so repentance means I have come to the decision that this way doesn't work and the only way I can go is the way that Christ is going. And so repentance means to change my way of thinking which results in a change of action. And now I'm no longer walking that way. I'm walking towards Christ and I'm walking with Him. That's what repentance is. And for many people that you and I didn't know, the problem is not that they don't believe in God. The problem is not that they haven't been to church and they haven't walked an aisle and prayed a prayer. The problem for many of them is that they've never truly experienced repentance. They've never truly come to to their part in their life where they said, I am turning away from life lived on my terms and I am turning instead to a life lived on Jesus' terms. And those three elements, faith, confession, and repentance, are essential elements of conversion. One cannot experience conversion without faith and repentance. And so we believe that missions and evangelism matter matter because salvation can only come through genuine biblical faith in Jesus Christ. But then finally, we believe that missions and evangelism matter because lost people will not believe in Jesus Unless we, the church, proclaim Christ to them. (coughs) Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 15 say this best. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? That's faith. How can someone be saved if they don't believe in Jesus? And how are they to believe in him or exercise faith in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? That word does not talk about the preaching that I am doing today. It's talking about the proclamation of the gospel to them. And how are they to preach or to proclaim the gospel unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. You see, if we believe that lost people's knowledge of God is insufficient to save them, and because we have the promise that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, then it's the responsibility of us as the church, as the redeemed people of God, to declare the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ to every person on this planet. Let me ask you a question. Do you really, truly believe, as I said earlier, that lost people's knowledge of God is insufficient to save them? Do you believe that people who who are lost do not have the knowledge necessary to save themselves? If you believe that then do you believe the only way they can be saved is by expressing faith and repentance in Jesus Christ? If you believe that's the only way people can be saved, then here's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 10, verses 14-15, through 15, is how are they going to do that if we don't go? That's the mission of the church. That's the mission that the Lord gave us. That's what the Great Commission Harvest Offering is all about. This, re- this week I was reading an excerpt from a book by Dave Donaldson where he quotes Rich Stern, who is the former CEO of World Vision. And Stern once shared this this word picture with them to help them to understand what the mission of the church is. Rich Stern said this, God has designed our bodies so that when there's a wound or an infection, all the white blood cells in the body move towards that infection to fight it off and bring healing. Now I can testify to that because I just spent a week in the hospital a few weeks ago with malaria. So I know what that's about. God's perfectly designed our bodies that whenever there's a wound or an infection, the white blood cells count move there, to, the white blood cells move there to fight off that infection and to bring healing. And then Rich Stern said the church should be doing the same thing in the community. Wherever there's a wound, wherever there's infection, wherever there's a lostness, wherever there's a brokenness, the church should be about moving there to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. I love these words by one of my favorite preachers, Charles Spurgeon, who once said this, Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Recollect that you are either trying to spread a of the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love Him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about Him. The man who says, I believe in Jesus but does not think enough of him ever to tell another person about him by mouth, by pen, or by tract, is an imposter. Those are harsh words. But they make us think about our calling as Christians. Paul gives us four things real quick. I'm going to give you these and then I'm going to close us out. Paul shows us four critical truths about lost people in verses 9 through 10. Number one, to call on Christ they must first believe. If people are going to call on Christ in salvation, they must come to the place where they believe. But to believe in Christ, they must first hear the gospel. If lost people are ever going to believe in Christ, if people, and and statistics tell us that 50 to 60 percent of Decatur is probably unchurched and the vast majority of the population greater than that is probably lost. If the people in our community are going to believe in Christ, they have to hear the gospel. To hear about Christ, then someone must first share the gospel with them. That's what Who's Your One is all about. It's about who God has called you to pray and share the gospel with. But to share the gospel, someone must be first willing to go. How then can they preach unless they are sent? Someone has to be willing to go. And so may God call us all to be willing to go to share the gospel with everyone that we can so that they can hear the gospel and believe the gospel and be saved. As I said before, there are many ways that we do that as a church. We do that by going, but we also do that by giving. And so what we're calling us as a church family to do in this season, in this month of November, is to pray, God, what would you have me to do to help us accomplish the mission of Central Park Baptist Church? Yeah, we're going to, we've set a goal of $110,000. We believe that God's called us to do mission endeavors, to, to do at least that much. It's going to cost us that much over this next year. But, but let me just be clear. Writing a check is not all that we're asking you to do. We're asking you to commit to giving financially to the mission and the Great Commission Ministries that we believe God's called us to do. But that's the minimal amount that we can do as the people of God. We are calling you also to be involved in things such as the Austinville Project where we go and hand out school supplies. Or to help us in a few weeks when we go to the Christmas parade and hand out hot chocolate and invitations to church. Or maybe later on this year when we say, you know what, we're going to call our church family together and we're going to prayer walk our community and we're going to ask God to bring about a spirit of revival within our community. We're asking you not only to give, we're asking you to be engaged in the mission. We're asking you to pray about who your one is and we're asking you to write that name down so that we can pray alongside of you and we're asking you to pray for God to give you a burden for lost people and a boldness to share the gospel over the course of the next 12 months. God's called every single one of us to do that, church. The question is not, has God called us to do it? The question is, what are you going to do about it? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I would be remiss this morning to close us out without giving an opportunity for someone in here who maybe has never trusted in Jesus Christ to do so today for the first time. You know, a few minutes ago we talked about what it means to to be saved and we talked about the fact that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. And that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But it takes coming to a point where You get sick and tired of being sick and tired and you get sick and tired of playing religious games and you get sick and tired of wearing religious masks and you you come to the realization that you've never truly submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You've never truly trusted in what Christ did on the cross for you. You've never truly expressed your faith in Him and repented of your sins. And so in just a moment, if you need to be saved, if you need to trust Christ and the gospel, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. You can't say, you know what, I want to think about it, I want to pray about it. What do you need to pray about? If God's revealed to you that you don't know Him as your Lord and Savior, then what else do you need to pray about? All you need to do is say yes to the offer of salvation. So in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to take a bold step to walk down here and say, Pastor Matt, I, just, I need to talk to somebody about Christ. I need to be saved. Maybe you're not ready to walk an aisle in front of a bunch of people. That's fine. You can see me, you can see David, you can see Ken, you can see Jamie, one of our staff members. After church, you can say, you know what, Pastor Matt was saying some things this morning and, and I just really don't know where I stand with the Lord and I want to settle that today. We'll be glad to talk to you about how you can know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you need to come today just because you feel in a, a burden today as a follower of Jesus Christ that God's called you to do more. And Maybe today you just need to come and, and pray over that and commit that to Him today. Whatever it is, in the next few moments as we have this invitation, you respond as the Lord Jesus leads. Holy Spirit. Speak to our hearts this morning. Convict the lost. Give them the courage and the boldness to follow you today. And challenge us as followers of Jesus Christ about what you would have us to do as we leave today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Sing this song and respond as the Lord leads you this morning.